Thank you, Pastor. You know, it's been a real blessing for us to be here as well. Um, it's going to be hard and, and to leave in some, a lot of ways. And um, Pastor talks about faithfulness and the faithfulness of giving and, and how that's been a blessing. And, you know, faithfulness in many ways, there's faithfulness everywhere here. You know, we see it on Saturday morning with the men, people that come. I mean, now, you know, Stan stepped up to help with the music. And um, I, I look around, I know you, you don't want to embarrass anybody, and they probably don't want to be called out, but I see Ann. You know, if you, a lot of people don't realize, like, you come in every Sunday and the bathrooms are cleaned, and, you know, somebody comes in and does that, and that's there's a faithfulness there because true faithfulness is done without the hope or the seeking of a reward. And, and a lot of people probably would never even know who does those things, but yet they continue to do it anyway. And so just, you know, that's, just praise God for that. You know, I look at Janet, she comes, you know, the coldest day of the year, it could be snowing, she comes 45 minutes. You know, that's faithfulness. And so where would we be without that? And not only in giving, but in serving, in attendance, and in everything. And, you know, Tim makes a joke about the deacons, the short straw, you know, but there's, there's some truth to that. The, you know, in the first century, the church, the, and the way it was designed and outlined in the Bible, um, you know, deacons aren't, it's not a position of leadership or a position of honor as much as it is a position of servitude. And so somebody that holds that office the way it should be held is a servant and is somebody who that you know who will do whatever needs to be done and roll up their sleeves and I, I couldn't think of anybody that would fit that bill better than Tim so he's certainly a servant in many ways but uh, thank you all for coming I appreciate you and there you know again faithfulness there too I look out Mark and Gail are here every week and and, and June and Janet and Ann and um, Tim and it's just it's a a blessing to me. So today we're going to do, we're going to be in lesson five in Journey into Kingdom Living, and our text is in Luke, and we're in seven, uh, chapter seven, 36 to 50. So you talk about, you know, loving Jesus, loving the Lord. How much do you love Jesus? It starts out with that question. Do you love Jesus as much as you should? And the answer is, of course not. <laughs> No, nobody does. Nobody can love Jesus the way they should. Jesus are, is our example of love. And, and we can't measure up, and no, nobody ever can. We're all going to always fall short. But that's our mark. That's our goal, right? That's what, what we shoot for. And so uh, you need to love him more, of course, which is part of the lifelong process that the Bible calls sanctification. So in a parable of the two debtors, Jesus reveals how to love him more. This parable is found only in the book of Luke. Luke records 28 of Jesus's parables. 17 are not found in the other gospels, including some of his most famous, the Good Samaritan, the prodigal son, and the rich man in Lazarus. So Jesus tells us the parable, the two debtors in his glee and ministry, because, his grow, because of his growing popularity, Jesus is experiencing hostility from the Pharisees. They try to discredit him with accusations. And so, for example, what does Jesus say he is accused? Of what does Jesus say he is accused in Luke 7, 34 CNE? And it starts out in the beginning of 34. It says, the Son of Man is, 
is coming eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, the gluttonous man and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. So we see that, you know, they're trying to discredit them. They're trying to, they're, um, the Pharisees are self-righteous, right? And so they're looking at Jesus, and, you know, I wonder, and I think they probably really know the truth, but, but they, to a certain degree, and maybe many of them don't, but they don't want to recognize Jesus for who he is. And so this, we see that here. They're trying to discredit him. Um, they're saying, you know, he, he's a gluttonous man, a wine-bibber. He's a friend of publicans and sinners. And, and Jesus says, you know, I've come to save the lost. Like, so that's his purpose. Of course he's friends with sinners. Shouldn't we all be friends with sinners? I mean, isn't that like, yeah, but they say it almost like in an accusatory way like it's a it's a strike against them and so and and you know really that shows the mindset and it shows the the social set of the pharisees as well so they're kind of kind of really exposing themselves there too um, so the anointing that initiated this parable is not the same anointing that occurred in at bethany in judea where when mary the sister of martha and lazarus anointed Jesus just before his crucifixion. That's found in John 12, 1 through 11. So from this parable, we find that loving Jesus more requires three actions. And it's to recognize your sinfulness, to refuse to be self-righteous, and to reflect on the meaning of what it means to be forgiven. And so we're going to look at the first one, recognizing your sinfulness. And so... With ulterior motives, Simon, one of the Pharisees, wants to know more about Jesus. Therefore, he invites Jesus to have dinner with him. Jesus goes to Simon's home, and he takes his place at the table. In, an ancient, in the ancient East, people did not sit while eating, as we do in the West. They reclined on couches with their heads near the table. So, that seems a little weird, but relaxing going away, too, right? I'd probably fall asleep. I'd, I'd ruin more of my shirts. <laughs> but uh, Simon is a Pharisee, which means a separated one. The Pharisees are a group of Jews committed to keeping Mosaic law, which, of course, we know now is not possible. Um, the Pharisees are a group, uh, a group of Jews committed to keeping Mosaic law. In, Ju in Luke 18, Jesus describes a self-righteous attitude of the average Pharisee. When one Pharisee went to the temple, he prayed, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. What does Jesus say a Pharisee, what else does Jesus say a Pharisee would pray? Now, and that's Luke 18, 12. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. But today we have a very low opinion of Pharisees. However, in Jesus' day, they were highly respected because they were considered very religious and very moral. But really, when you look at it, there were some things that they didn't get. And, and I think part of Jesus' ministry is to show that and to, to shed a light on that. And, and, and we do, he does. So as Simon's group of distinguished friends are having dinner, a woman in that city, a sinner, a sinner, probably a prostitute, hears Jesus is eating at Simon's house. So she comes to his house, bringing an expensive alabaster box, which is white or transparent, a form of gypsum, 
with decorative carving. The box is filled with very expensive perfume. At Jewish dinners, when a rabbi was present, people were allowed to come in and listen. Because of this woman's reputation, she's not necessarily welcome among such respected people. Therefore, her coming requires great courage. The woman stands at Jesus' feet and begins to weep. She then kneels, washes his feet with her tears, and wipes them with her hair. Next, she kisses his feet and puts her expensive perfume on them. Not only does she bring Jesus the most precious possession that she has, she also brings the only sacrifices that God desires. What are they? According to Psalm 51, 17a and b. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. And so that's important because that's what God wants from us. That's the sacrifice God wants. And then, you know, you, we look at cultural, especially in this first century, we look at cultural um, stations, I guess, right? There's wealthy, there's poor as there is today. This sacrifice that Jesus requires, it's irregardless of what your social status is. It's irregardless of what your financial status is. You can be a poor man, you can be a wealthy man. You still have the ability to come before Christ with a broken and a contrite heart. And so isn't it interesting that that's what he wants? He's not requiring something you can't give. He's not requiring something that only rich people can give. He, this, what he wants, everybody is capable of it. And so it's a standard that he sets. And, and when we look at that, then that's important to know who Christ is and what he expects from us and what he wants. You know, they talk about the woman coming into the house and not necessarily being welcome there. And we, I think if we're honest, and I've never seen it here, but certainly in some churches that exists, where people are, you know, put in groups or ostracized because of their social, social position. I saw a thing, it was a, maybe somewhat unrelated, but it was, it was um, on social media somewhere, it was a, a pastor who was, he was gonna be a new pastor in a church, and it was a large church, and he had, before he came and introduced himself, he had, you know, let his beard grow and his hair, and he wore old clothes and an old smelly, ratty jacket, and he presented himself as a homeless person. And he just walked in the front door one random Sunday. And, you know, some of the couple, he was greeted by a couple of the ushers or, you know, the leadership of the church. And they said, oh, maybe you'd be comfortable sitting back here. You know, and we kind of see that, that example in the Bible, too, where, you know, the Pharisees are given the prominent seats. And that's, that's kind of exactly what happened. And so he, he goes, and certain people didn't have that attitude. And it's just interesting, because then he reveals himself at the end as the pastor. The next week he comes, he's all cleaned up, and they look at him like, oh, that, that guy. You know, and the first thing he does is he sorts everybody out, and he fires the people. To, doesn't fire them, but he takes them out of those positions and says, you, you're not going to serve in that capacity because you don't have the right attitude for it. And so we're seeing that here, like, you know, was this lady welcomed in the house? Well, certainly Jesus welcomed her. And because of the custom, she had the right to go in and to hear the preaching from the rabbi. But did Simon welcome her? I mean, he kind of knew it was expected that he was supposed to welcome her, so he didn't ask her to leave. But if, if we could really examine his heart and his attitude, 
did they, did those Pharisees welcome her? I think the answer would be no, they, they really didn't, although she was allowed to stay. So, uh, so the perfume was typically used for anointing the head. However, this woman apparently feels unworthy to touch the head of the Lord Jesus because she knew she's a sinner. Yet many people who go to church every Sunday are worse sinners than this woman because they will not admit their sinfulness. Right? There goes back to a broken and contrite heart. If you're filled with pride and you refuse to believe that you are, doing, you are a sinner, then first of all, if you refuse to be, believe you're a sinner, how could you even be saved? Right? But, but if you have that, that attitude, then you, that's, like, that's the opposite of a broken and contrite heart. So right there we see that's not that prideful. You know, and the Bible talks about pride and, and, you know, the sin of pride. And so... It all ties together. But um, the more you love Jesus, recognize your sinfulness. Or to love, to love Jesus more, we need to recognize our sinfulness. And we need to refuse to be self-righteous. The room is filled with silence as Simon's distinguished guest sits stunned that such a woman would touch a Jewish man, making him unclean. Simon thinks to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. Not only does Simon feel superior to this woman, but he feels superior to Jesus as well. And that's, that's important because, you know, does he even have an idea who this is? I mean, supposedly he should, but... Um, Jesus is presenting himself that way, but again, inside himself, he has doubt because he's saying, well, why is he doing that? Well, listen, if you recognize and you know that that's the Lord Jesus Christ, then you don't have to know why he's doing things. You should just automatically know it's right. And so we see Simon, he fails to have that, that broken, contrite heart. And so that's, it's going to work against him, obviously. And so... Um, Jesus knows who's touching him as well as Simon's thinking because he's God in the flesh and blood. So he knows the doubt Simon has. He knows what Simon's thinking. And what does Psalm 139, too, reveal about God? Thou knowest my downsitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thoughts afar off. At this very moment, the Lord knows where you're sitting and he knows what you're thinking. And, he, and that's true every second of every day, of every week of every year. We can't escape that. And so, um, you know, are your thoughts like the sinful woman's or the prideful Simon's? I don't know. No one does, but the Lord knows. Knowing his thoughts, Jesus tells Simon he has something to say to him. Simon arrogantly tells him to say it. Then Jesus tells a parable about a moneylender who had two debtors. One owed him 500 pence, about two years' wages, while the other owed him 50, about two months' wages, or one-tenth as much. When neither could pay, the lender kindly forgave them both, canceling their debt. What does Jesus then ask Simon? He, said, he asks him, which of them will love him most? Seeing the point, Simon begrudgingly answers, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. With his answer, Simon is placed in the position of judging himself. Therefore, Jesus responds, thou hast rightly judged. 
Simon couldn't admit his sinfulness because he was self-righteous, a result of pride and arrogance, right? What does God declare in Psalm 101? Him that hath a high look and a proud heart will I not suffer. And Jesus is saying, you know, I'm not, I, I can't abide that. I can't have any part of that. And so it's a rebuke. Right? It's, a, it's a rebuke, and we see it all through the Bible, pride, the, the sin of pride, and what's said about it. And so this is just along that line. Now, self-righteous people cannot have a relationship with God, much less, lo- much less love Jesus more. To love Jesus more, recognize your sinfulness. Refuse to be self- self-righteous and reflect on the meaning of being forgiven. And Jesus turns toward the woman still kneeling at his feet and tells Simon to look at her. Jesus then points out Simon's rudeness by refusing to extend to him the common courtesies of the day when he entered his house. Simon intentionally offered no water to wash the dust from Jesus' sandaled feet. He did not give Jesus the customary kiss of greeting on his cheek, nor did he anoint Jesus' head with oil. In contrast, Jesus says the sinful woman washed his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. She also kissed his feet repeatedly. Then Jesus says to Simon, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. So we, we talk about, and they're going to get into it, the next chapter here says, loving Jesus more resulting from understanding how much we're forgiven. Right, So, of course, the more that we are forgiven, the more that we realize we're sinning and we see what it means, what God's forgiveness means, then that allows us to love him more. Right? And then because, because we, get what, we get to grasp the meaning of it more. I mean, can anybody really fully grasp what it means to be forgiven of every single sin? that we've ever committed and that we ever will commit. I mean, we, we kind of, we understand it, right? We understand what it means. But do, do you think we could like fully really understand it? But the more that we're forgiven, the more we see like, wow, like it's huge, right? And that keeps growing and that allows us to love, love Christ more, love God more. And so that's so a young woman in our church has a personalized car tag that reads for GIVN, forgiven. That sums up what it means to be a Christian, forgiven, right? Which that's, that's a powerful statement right there. The degree to which we understand the word forgiven determines our love for the Lord. Jesus, in, in contrast, what does Jesus say in the last phrase of verse 47? But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. So it's just what we were just talking about, only the other end of it. To if, if you, and, and see then we go back to a humble and a contrite, or broken and a contrite heart, because if you don't have that, you don't feel the need to be forgiven. You have, you're self-righteous. So you're being forgiven little. So then you only have the capacity to love little because you don't fully understand. And those things, when, you, when your spirit is broken down to that, you know, when you're, you're, you become hum- humble and you have that contrite heart, then it floods in and you realize, wow, I really am a sinner. I really do need to be forgiven. And then hopefully it just grows exponentially from there. 
So Simon and his group of dignified guests are even more shocked when Jesus says to the woman, thy sins are forgiven. The word translated forgiven, ofriemi, if I'm pronouncing that right, means to send away or to cast away, right? So he talks about, talks about, you know, um, and the Bible says uh, as far as the east is from the west, right? When you, your sins are forgiven, they're, they're, that's it. They're cast, they're cast out. You don't bear them anymore. You don't bear the, the consequence, uh, the, you'll, you'll bear the consequences. You won't bear the burden or the guilt of those sins. And so that's, that's important, right? Micah 7, 7.19 describes what it means to be forgiven. He praises God's mercy. He will turn again. He will, he will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities. And thou will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. And then it goes on here, for sake of time, I'm just going to kind of glance over some of this, but he, he goes on here and he says, the deepest part of the ocean is the Mariana Trench. So it's, you know, it's deep. It's deep enough to where if you took the highest mountain in the, you know, Mount Everest and you put it in the Mariana Trench, you'd still have 7,000 feet of water above the mountain before you got to the surface. So it's a pretty deep trench. So when, but if we try to, because in our human infinite, infinite minds, we can't always grasp these, these things, like forgiveness. That's, that's, we partially grasp it, but to know really what it means, really the depth of how Christ forgives, that's an illustration where they, they try, you know, it's like putting our, he casts our sins and he puts them down at the bottom of that trench so it's so deep, humans can't even survive. We're never going to see those sins again. We're never going to bear a burden for those sins again. And so it's just an illustration they use to try to, try to make us understand the magnitude of it. And sin, you know, sins are forever given away, ever put away. It wasn't her tears, her perfume, or her loving display that caused this woman to be completely forgiven. What did Jesus say saved her? He says, thy faith have saved thee. Go in peace, right? Thy faith. And of course, we know that's how salvation comes. You know, it's through faith in Christ. Through faith that, you know, it's, so it's to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And that's, that's different than believing in Christ, right? The devil believes, Right? The devil knows who Christ, he believes in Christ, but he, he's not saved. We can, I kind of put it, maybe it's a, not maybe the best analogy, but it works in my mind, right? It's like if you have a, you have a ladder, an old wooden ladder, and it's, it's been in your grandfather's barn for 100 years, and it's hanging on the wall, and it's dry rotted, and it's splintered, and it creaks, and there's big cracks in the side of it. And then you, you come up to it, and you say, do you believe in that ladder? Well, yeah, I mean, I can't deny the ladder exists. I could hold it. I could take it off the wall and hold, physically hold it in my hands. I believe this ladder exists. Do you believe on the ladder? Well, it, to believe on the ladder, I got to get on it and climb it up 30 feet and believe it's going to hold me and I'm not going to topple to my death. That's, so it's the same thing with believing on Christ, right? We can believe in Christ. We can believe Christ exists. We know he exists, do we believe on Christ? Do we believe that he has the ability to do what he promises to do to save us through our faith in him? 
And so, um, you know, that he died on the cross for the remission of our sins. Do we, that's believing on Christ. Believing on Christ is more than believing in him. It's believing that he, he is who he says he is, and he's done what he says he's done, and he can do in, in and through salvation for us what he says he can. And so, so that's, that's the difference. Believe And so that's what saved this lady, thy faith, her faith, right? Um, she was in an adverse environment. She wasn't welcome probably, um, but yet she went that extra mile. She, she had the reverence for God. She washed his tears with her hair, dried them with her hair, right? And these, these other people, they wouldn't even, you know, he came into Simon's house. He wouldn't even get, get, extend them those courtesies, which was customary for the day. So, her tears and loving acts simply demonstrate her saving faith by God's grace. Jesus' final words to the woman are, go in peace. This means go in peace with God. Jesus wants her to know that she no longer has a burden to bear, or, or, or the burden to bear of guilt for her sins. The result of experiencing God's forgiveness through faith is peace. Like, Wow. Think about that, right? <laughs> that, that's where true peace comes from. It's believing on God. It's believing through faith that he's doing these things that he promised to do, that he says he can do. And so that's huge. The, uh, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. The more you reflect on and understand the meaning of being forgiven, the more you will love Jesus and peace will be multiplied unto you. And really, that could, be, that could be a lifelong process, right? Because we know we're never going to be able to forgive the way Christ forgives or the way Christ wants us to forgive. So the best we can do is try our whole lives to be a little better than, you know, understand it a little more than we did yesterday, to understand what it means to be forgiven, to try to forgive others a little better than we did it the day before and just to grow as much as we can in that, knowing that we're never going to meet Christ's mark. But, but the more that we do grow, the more that we do learn, the more that we do understand, the more ability we'll have to love him. With that comes a higher level of worship, a higher level of praise. And so those things all go together, right? To love Jesus more, recognize your sinfulness, refuse to be self-righteous, and reflect on the meaning of being forgiven. You know, we, when we pray for the will of Christ, the, so the more you know and understand God, the more you will know grace and peace. God also, there, also therefore forgives. We, we need to, when we pray, we should pray for the will of God. This is maybe not quite related to this, but it, it ties in my mind a little bit. We pray for things all the time, like, God, help me with this. You know, heal me of this. Give me safety as I travel here. But really, like it says in James, we should pray, God, if it be your will. Because maybe what I want isn't necessarily what God wants. And maybe what I want isn't what I need even. Maybe I'm going to pray for safety, not to get sick. Maybe God's bigger plan requires me to get sick for some reason because 
um, could be a multitude of reasons. Maybe there's someone that needs witness in the hospital, or maybe his purpose is glorified and magnified by my death, you know, for some reason that I can't even fathom with my infinite mind. So when we, when we pray, we need to pray, God, if it be your will, because listen, I can pray for what I want, and the Bible tells us, you know, if, ask for the thing, you know, if you, you, you want not, ask, or how drawn a blank on it, but ask for the things you want, basically is the paraphrasing of it. And so we're, we are to do that, and we, we can do that, but we should always include that, this is what I want, please give it to me, if it be your will. Because that's recognizing there's things to this I don't understand. So I'm deferring to you to do it your way, right? Like we'll say, God has a plan for my life. Well, <clears throat> really more accurate thing to say is God has a plan. He, he's not up there like, let me get to the Tim Butler plan, right? He's got a plan. Somehow, if I'm faithful, if I do what I'm supposed to do, he will allow me in some probably insignificant way to fit into that plan. So it's not my plan, it's not a, his plan for me, it's how I fit into his plan. And it, and it, may, it may be a small distinction, but I think it's one that's worth knowing, noting. And, it, and that goes in with this lesson of kingdom living and, and forgiveness and how to love Christ more by recognizing, by praying that way, by recognizing God's sovereign authority and what his influence on our life means and how we should give up what we want in order to submit to what he wants, that ties into that. That helps, it allows us to love Christ more as well. It shows reverence, it shows respect. And so, so even though it wasn't really kind of part of the lesson, I wanted to just throw it in there because I think, I think it's important. And... Uh, you know, we can love Christ, and we do. And Christian, we should always love Christ. But you know what? We could always love Christ more. And so by trying to understand some of these things, some of these principles, um, hopefully will help us to do that. So <clears throat> I want to thank you all for coming. And I just have a quick moment of prayer before I turn it back over to Pastor Lord. Thank you so much, Lord, for your word. Thank you so much for, Lord, the influence you have on my life and that you can have on all of our lives. Thank you so much for your grace and your mercy and, Lord, your forgiveness. Lord, thank you that those things allowed my salvation. We thank you for that. Lord, I just pray that going forward, you would help me to understand you more, to know you better. Lord, and in, in doing so, to love you more and to have more of the peace that you provide. And I thank you for it, Lord. I thank you going forward for what you'll do in the following services and what you'll do here, Lord. I thank you so much for the blessings you give me in my life. But thank you for these people who made it important to come here and to help look at, learn, and study your word. And I hope that it would touch each one's heart and that we can apply it to our lives. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.